0: Hello and welcome to Red Board Rewind. I am not Spencer Lugenbuehl. He is under the weather today, so I am co-hosting instead Peter Thomas Fornital, Happy to be here with you from the Brooklyn Bunker. And this was a show, you know, I never want to wish ill on anybody, obviously, let alone somebody like Spencer, who I like so much, but... If Spencer was going to get a sore throat and I was going to have to come in at the 11th hour and break format and interview a guest on the show, this is the week I'd want it to happen because I get to bring in my old friend. He's been on the show, one of our most popular guests, not just for his handicapping and betting acumen, but also his general storytelling. I'm talking about Frank
1: McGowey. Frank, what's up, my man? How we doing, Pete? Living the dream down here. Big Big week. <laughs> Getting ready for uh, Pegasus jumping on the plane Thursday, heading to Florida. Uh, looking forward to that. Traveling with a uh, we'll just call it a colored group. Um, they've got a uh, they've got quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of uh, flair with them. We'll just say so. Looking forward to being down there. They'll fit in well in the Miami scene.
0: I think it sounds like a good uh, a good goal to uh, to get down there nice and early for Pegasus, settle in, and have the magic happen in that contest. Have you made any noise before at the Pegasus
1: contest? I finished third last year. That's right. Uh, yeah, so I'm going back, taking another swing at it.
0: What's your approach to the Pegasus generally speaking? Does it differ from other live band contests?
1: You know, um, no, it, it's pretty much – it's. The same, pretty much the same formula with me for all of these contests. Um, If I'm right twice on that day, I'll have a chance to win it. I mean, you gotta, you gotta leverage your strongest opinions, and you gotta take more than the minimum bet swing. And uh, you know, if you can double up, and then have a shot at making one big score, so you got a chance to be at the top of the leaderboard. So. I'll find a couple of spots. And, you know, I'm not crazy about playing Gulfstream dirt races. Um, I'm not a fan of that track uh, on a daily basis, but um, I like the turf racing over there. And uh, I just think certain riders ride it the right way. You got to save some ground. And if you can figure out who's going to get the trip with a little luck, you can do okay in the turf racing over there.
0: A lot of things to follow up on there already. First, on the contest front, you strike me as somebody who's not going to be afraid to go all in at any time on his strongest opinion. Am I reading that correctly?
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, you got to, at some point, you're going to have to do it to win these contests. I mean, you're going to have to make a big bet somewhere along the way and be right. And you got to factor into it the amount of prize money when you're making that bet. So, um, you know, if you're making a bet on a horse, uh, I'll give you a perfect example you um, get a draw my on the British Cup. He was 13 to 1. But when you factored in the prize money that was coming back when my brother made that bet on him, he was like 30 to 1. Right. So, you know, it's worth taking a shot at 30 to 1. Um, and it's easy to justify it.
0: You talked about not liking Gulfstream dirt racing. What is it that you don't like about that track?
1: It's not a lot of movement. Um, it seems like, you know, after the first eighth of a mile, the fields for the most part stay intact. They've got that short stretch run. Um, you know, closes are really hindered most of the time. Um, and I, I just find it very tricky. Uh, a lot of times you just see horses make the lead and, and a couple of pass off the rail and they just stay there on the lead the whole way. It doesn't matter who's behind them and how hard they're chasing them. they just can't catch them
0: as good as you are as designing races, uh, and what I mean by that is trying to see how they're going to be run before they're actually run, it wouldn't have shocked me if you preferred a track where you could count on a prevailing bias like that just for your ability to maybe foresee who was going to be the horse who benefited from the the potentially unfair conditions. Why is that not the case, or is this just a Gulfstream thing?
1: No, because when it comes, when when there's too much that relies on what the jockey does, that I don't trust them. Well, uh, <laughs> I'm being honest. I mean, No, I, I appreciate it. I mean, whenever track position is that important, I tend to stay away from those races because, you know, things happen where jockeys put horses in the wrong spots or they break a tad slow and they can't get to the right spot. I mean, I'd much rather play on a fair track. That's interesting. Uh, that surprises me. <laughs> I, I, I take a lot of detailed notes on bias tracks so that when horses come back on fair tracks, you'll have a chance to take advantage of it.
0: Oh, that's an interesting perspective. And uh, I mean, I think it makes sense. It, we talk so much about. Gambling personality and what your gambling personality is on the other show with JK. But there, I think there's also such a thing as a handicapping personality. And it sounds like for you, trying to keep the humans out of the equation as much as possible and focus on the equines, that sounds like it's a little bit more down your street.
1: You know, it is. I mean, there's a lot of times if I see severe biases, I'm, I'm, I'm really not a big fan of betting speed bias tracks um, or tracks where the rail is really strong. Uh, but I'll, I know that those are the days that I can get a lot of future winners. So I'll pay a lot of attention and take detailed notes on the horses that were against it. And, you know, they better than look efforts that they're going to look in next time they show up in the past performances. Um, so even though I might not bet those days as much, I really concentrate and focus on a lot of those days to take advantage of it when it comes in the right situation.
0: Have you ever taken notes on jockeys who maybe ride a biased surface particularly well? It would make sense to me if riders who were particularly good in the gate, for example, ended up having an edge, and you might be able to find something angle-wise according to that that might help put you in a more comfortable footing.
1: Absolutely, and it's not that I'm, I'm not taking notes on them day to day, but just in general. You know, I I know the riding styles of the major jockeys at the tracks that I follow routinely. Um, You know, you know which ones are going to tuck in and save ground, and that's going to be beneficial whenever the rail's good. You know which ones are afraid of the rail and they're going to go around everything. It's going to be detrimental when the rail's good. But if you got a track that's favoring closes, it's going to play into their hands. Um, These guys, these a lot of these jockeys, just like horses, are creatures of habit. And they they do the same things over and over. I mean, it's not a coincidence that say Saez wins as many races as he does at Gulfstream Because he's strong, getting the horse out of the gate, and he gets him in position. And like we were talking about before, a lot of those horses just keep going at Gulfstream. Stream.
0: So you do try to factor in the jockey as a handicapping factor. It's just you don't feel comfortable when it becomes disproportionately important.
1: Correct. Absolutely, that's a hundred percent. That's a hundred percent accurate. And you know, uh, the slower races are run, the more these jo- i mean, the slower—not the races in general, but the slower paces are, which tends to be um, something that we've seen a lot of these days. The way jockeys are riding races, jockeys become more important, and how they how they're riding the race determines the outcome a lot of times, almost just as much as how good the horses. Um, you know, if, if they're backing down paces and a guy's on a natural closer, he's probably not gonna and he he doesn't sense it and, and get his horse involved early, he's not gonna get there. I mean they can only run so fast. You can't make up that ground if you got decent horses in front of you and they get a big head start.
0: You talked about paying attention to the riders on your local circuit. Your local circuit these days is Fairgrounds, and we're breaking format on the show today. I've decided anytime I have the opportunity to just talk generally with Frank, I'm going to just go ahead and do that. You know, also I'm going to be bothering you later in the show for a story, so you can start. You can start thinking about that now. I'm not going to let you get out of here without. I have one specific story I'll ask you about, and I'll throw you an open-ended question to give me another one at some point. But I do want. Not a problem. Excellent. I do want to look back at one specific race from last weekend, and we can talk about it in the typical Red Board Rewind style, typically on the show and for new listeners, uh, they'll appreciate this too. We talk about the race as if it hasn't happened. We play the race call and then we deconstruct what we learned. What were your thoughts, Frank, going into the LeCompte race 13 from the fairgrounds last Saturday?
1: Uh, I thought it was a good race. I was looking forward to it. I actually went out, uh, I went live to the fairgrounds that day uh, for the later part of the card. They put on a 13-race card that day. I couldn't take the whole day up there, but I went out for, like, the last half. Um, and I got a chance to go down to the paddock and see these horses coming in, which is something I, you, you know, uh, from my derby conversations, I love seeing these horses in the flesh because I think it really helps separate um some horses in my mind about who's got potential physically going forward um, and who maybe doesn't match up physically because I think that's important as to a maturity level and just the the size of some of these horses and how much ground they might cover and who might be looking like a horse that wants to go further down the line. So uh, I went out there. I was excited about the race. I thought it looked like we were going to have a legit pace, and we did, which was good. I had had the benefit of seeing some of the horses train locally. Uh, I go out to the track. I can't go all the time, but I go out a couple of mornings a week and um, and get to see these horses train. And I had seen a number of these train and was impressed with quite a few of them um, and was looking forward to seeing how they did. And um, the way things shaped up, it ran pretty much true to form as to what I was thinking. I had been very impressed with the way that um, aspieson to our Silver State had been working at the fairgrounds he had actually worked him uh, in company with three other horses the last time i saw him work and he, he laid back off of them took some dirt and really finished well and so i was looking forward to a big effort out of him I had only seen a solo work from enforceable but he made a good appearance the day i saw him and uh, he was moving really good so he was definitely on my list and then uh, I've been seeing Mr. Monomoy since he, you know, Bray Cox has of me the whole time. And I had seen his um, allowance race too bad, or last time before this race when he got beat. And uh, I was really curious to see how he did going forward because um, he didn't have much excuse for getting beat that day. And I was wondering if maybe it was just immaturity and he had fallen asleep when he took the lead. But, you know, in hindsight... I don't think it really was I, th- I think he just got out finished that day by Lynn's map and um, and I think we learned a lot more about him Saturday in the comp
0: Lynn's map was originally scheduled to compete had Lynn's map been in this race how would that have changed your your perception of mr monomoy or this field in general
1: well um, it wouldn't have changed it that much because of where he was posted he and he had drawn the 14 hole. And, um, and, you know, I don't know if that factored anything into what Cassie decided to do um, with scratching him. He's running at Oakland this weekend. Um, so, I, you know, from that post at this distance, that would have been tough. I know War Will did that, but that was a different scenario. There was, there was He was going to be posted wide going into the first turn because there was legit speed underneath him. And, and um, he probably wouldn't have caught much of the trip. He probably would have caught a similar trip to. The, than that of Sycamore Run that he got, who was the 13, who was a good horse and I think deserves another chance, even though he didn't show up on Saturday.
0: So you gave us an overview of your short list going into the the paddock, essentially. Did you see anything in the paddock itself that impressed or surprised you?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I can go through. I can just go through the field real quick and kind of give you a mental idea well, man, of what I was thinking of myself. That's so, great idea. Um, Finnick the Fierce uh, When I saw him I don't know if everybody knows this He's a one-eyed horse And um, and he kind of A he, he, little skittish in the paddock I don't know if it had anything to do with the fact that He's only got one eye But um, he was a little excited and looking around And he kind of ran that way too I mean if you watched the race He was he made a big move turning for home But then he was leaning in And, and kind of lugging in on the horse's leg Before he flattened out Um, I got to see him. He looked like an okay horse. He's not a threat going forward physically. Mr. Monomoy is is a good-looking horse. Um, Thought he made a good appearance. Um, Not quite as big as the top two finishes physically. And and I'm a little bit concerned about him maybe going much further than a mile and an eighth. I don't know. He, He didn't give me that impression of that kind. Perfect star. He didn't belong in this race. Um, he was clearly outclassed physically and our numbers. And he needs to go back something more realistic. Scabbard, I had seen Scabbard tra- uh, train his only local work on January 12th here. And I wasn't really impressed. And I didn't know if he had done a lot more at Palm Meadows before he got here. And uh, when I saw him in the paddock, he didn't make a very good physical impression to me either. I think he might be a but one of the two-year-olds that kind of peaked at two it not going to take that step forward that you need to at this time of the year to be serious. Accession Steve Asmussen's, one of his horses looked fantastic, big, strong horse. He made a really good impression and, uh, maybe a little bit more blocky kind of, uh, muscular build, more like a horse that would benefit from a bit of a cutback. Um, going forward, and he actually made a mid-move in the race that would suggest that before flattening out late. Um, New Eagle, didn't make much of an impression on me, just kind of average. Halo again, kind of the same with New Eagle. Uh, Not a bad-looking horse. Can't knock him, but just nothing to really catch your eye. Jack the umpire, he was overmatched. He needs to, to, you know, this wasn't Delta down. He did well over there. And he needs to look for that kind of company. Silver State is very attractive, good-looking horse, strong, big. Came in with a presence about him, too. Um, look, of all the horses in the race, he was the most filled out and, and looked the most confident coming into the paddock. Enforceable looked really good, but i tell you, Enforceable looked like a horse to me that still has some maturing to do physically, which could be speak very well for him down the line. I mean... Yeah. He's had a lot of races, but he just looked, he, he looked a little bit, I mean, you could tell there's room for him to keep growing and to get, uh, to get bigger and stronger. So, I mean, that's Cassie's got to be really excited about him. And then Bango, uh, I don't remember that much about seeing Bango to be honest with you shakes, uh, shake, shake me up. He, he made a good appearance, the Calumet horse. And, um, he was okay. He was a Shackleford. I mean, he looked good, and Sycamore Run is a beautiful horse, uh, Joe Sharp's horse, uh, and I mean, I, I knew that first time going in, he looked fantastic, and and by the way, um, I think his race was a little bit, his maiden race, where he won, even though it was kind of the flow that day that he broke his maiden of December 21st, that Super Santa Saturday at the fairgrounds, that race was franked by the performance of Shake Some Action who came back and, and won a good main race on the turf out of that race. He had been beaten well in, in that Sycamore run race. And uh, so I think that that was a good heat. He's the nice horse.
0: Fantastic. We love the rundown. We've never gotten the full rundown of what they look like in the paddock, and it's so important on the Triple Crown Trail. Before we play the call of this race, I wanted to get your uh, betting strategy. Were you alive in any picks coming into this race? Were you starting anew? How did you end up approaching it?
1: Uh, I did, well, I was a lot, I, I made some pick fours, this race ended in the pick four, but it was pretty chalky, um, I was going back to, my, the, the way I had written the race, uh, Silver State was my key, nine with 210 and 13, that was the only horses I was playing, um, so I was a little more heavily, um, heavily locked into Silver State and the pick fours, but I had those all those numbers covered enough that I was going to make a profit if one of one won. And then I just played the race similarly. I didn't play uh, Superfectors. I played Exactors and Tries, Key and Silver State, first and second with those horses. So it, it was a, a really good race for me, the way it came out. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's kind of how I figured it was going to be run, but it it went up one of the good days.
0: That's great. When you constructed those tickets, did you play the combinations equally in your key with silver state or did you have more money one, some way or another, how much, how much do you split hairs when it comes to the actual construction of your tickets?
1: So usually I'll make a, I I was pretty thin in the races going up to it because the races were, was, were pretty formful in my opinion. Um, so my, if you want to call it a gorilla ticket, I, I stood alone. <laughs> I, yeah, if you want to call it a gorilla ticket, it wasn't that expensive. So I had the gorilla ticket covered with all my numbers a couple of times. And then I had gone back and had pressed um, each horse along with Silver State. In other words, I went back to just two and nine one time. Then I went back to nine and ten one time and nine and thirteen one time. So I had them all. I had them all covered a little extra, but I had Silver State covered more than anybody else.
0: And was it the same approach in the verticals in those exactas uh, you you mentioned before?
1: Yeah, I would. Well, no, so I, I I typically bet races the same way. I'll I'll make a win bet on a horse I like if the price is right, and I, I thought the price was fair enough on Silver State. I made a decent win bet, and I'll make exactas for more on top and reverse them for less, um, and then. A lot of times I don't make tries. If I have a, too many horses up underneath that I think could run second or third. But in this case, we only had one number over three numbers. It was very easy to, to key him first and second with the horses in the try. I think I actually put them third too um, with those horses. All right. We're going to so, – oh, you go ahead. No, I was going to say it was a minimal investment with a, a good return.
0: All right. Well, let's play the call. We'll see how it all shook out for Frank in this year's LeCompte.
2: And they're off in the 2020 LeCompte Stakes. New Eagle between horses strikes out. Mr. Monomoy, good speed. Scabbard is right there with Jack the umpire. Bango with an early bid. And right with that is Sha Sha Shake Me Up as they charge into the clubhouse turn. It's Bango. Bango's taking the lead for Brian Hernandez Jr. Sha Sha Shake Me Up with an early move now into second as these three rolls go to the back of the track. Jack the umpire is just in third. Mr. Monomoy broke sharp. Fourth toward the inside for Floron Giroux with six furlongs to go. Sycamore Run is in the clear on the outside. Running in fifth position by length and a half. Scabbard is sixth with the rail. Then on the outside, New Eagle has the white blinkers with just inside five furlongs to go. Followed by Accession toward the rail, one of those Calumet Farm 3 black gold chevrons. It's a break of three more then to Silver Slate. Also in the maroon toward the inside is Halo again. Then on the outside, Enforceable in the back half of the field, along with Finnick the Fierce and Perfect Stars 13th. The quarter was 23.46 seconds. Half mile 47.41. They turn again with three furlongs to go. Sha Sha Shake Me Up has taken a short lead from at the inside. Looking to battle on as bango but has dropped back. Right there is Jack the umpire, along with Mr. Monomoy, who now looks to move through between horses. Heads are turned for home past the quarter pole. Three quarters and one minute, 12.20 seconds. Sha, sha, shake me up. Mr. Monomoy driven toward the inside. Here's Enforcible, who's rattling home with one furlong to go. And Enforcible has taken the lead. Mr. Monomoy battles, and on the outside is Silver Slate, but close to home with Julian Leperu. It's Enforcible! and forcible to win the LeCompte Stakes. Length and a half to Silver Slate. Mr. Monomoy was third, Scabbard fourth from Finnick the Fierce. Next.
0: There you have it, folks. Pretty much just like Frank drew it up. Very nice result for you in this year's LeCompte. Were you pleased with that result?
1: I was. I was. And there, I think there were a couple of uh, things to note about some of the performances. Just some mental notes, or not mental notes. These are actually the notes that I put into my file and, and will going forward when I think about these horses in their next races. Um, Mr. Monomoy, uh, he overall in my mind got a good trip. He had to wait and idle a little bit on a turn and, and but when he got a chance, Giroux was able to get into him and he, I think he saw his best. He was trying. He was just third best on that day with a good trip. That's something to keep in mind. Um, Scabbard, he had a little bit of trouble kind of in the same spot that Mr. Monomoy did. They were both tucked down towards the inside uh, with a little traffic trouble at the top of the stretch. But at the end, he kind of flattened out, and uh, I didn't see a whole lot there going forward. I think here's a horse I think uh, something to note. Accession. he made a, a decent middle move, and I think he's a horse that might benefit from a cutback. Um, I'm curious to see what Askewson does with him. Uh but, because I think he's got some ability. I'm just not sure if the further the better for him. Silver State, got a, maybe a step slow out of the gate, a slight bobble, and then just uh, situationally, it looked like Santana decided around the half-mile pole that he wanted to tuck in going into the second turn and try to save some ground. And traffic in front of him probably cost him uh, some ground in this race and it could have cost him the outcome of the race because. Enforceable decided to stay wide. Leperu kept him a little wider and got first run. He got in full speed, uh, and Silver State was having to idle a little bit before he switched out. And then once he did switch out, he had to negotiate through some traffic around the eighth pole and then finished strongly. So the, the top two's efforts were solid in my mind. They did get a solid pace to run into. It wasn't suicidal, but they did get some pace to run into, which is going to benefit both of them because they look like off the, tape, off the uh, pace types. So, uh, and then in my mind I said you can just draw a line through Sycamore Runs race because he also bobbled a little bit at the start was probably off about a half a leg slow was kind of hung wide and then I could just see um, the amount of pressure that he was under being asked so much in the turn that he was not running his race because I've seen him train he's a better horse than that I'm guessing that Joe Sharp is probably going to run him back in the allowance race and give him a confidence booster and then we'll see him again in Louisiana Derby.
0: <laughs> it's great stuff. What fantastic notes. Thank you for sharing them. Bunch of follow-ups. When it comes to judging the pace, in this case, you said fast, not suicidal. What are you using to judge that? Is that just your eye? Are you looking at the clock? How are you making that assessment?
1: It, it's a combination of, of the clock in my eye. Um, and then, you know, I can confirm it with pace figures. That, uh, you know, I'm, I'm lucky to use pace figures from Paul Matisse, and uh, he does a great job. And um, once, the, you know, once he puts in the pace figures for the race, I'll go back and, and confirm what I saw. And this looks like a solid pace, but it, it you know, wasn't way too fast early. Um, it looked reasonable for this level and this distance. So it was a solid pace. It wasn't suicidal, though. When you first
0: got familiar with pace figures, was that something that Paul introduced you to, or is it a, a concept you've known for your whole time in the game?
1: No, uh, actually, Paul introduced me to them, and they're, they're fantastic. Uh, I, I can't imagine handicapping the races without them. Um, to get a chance to see, and I, I love it when I see races where you have a lot of horses that appear to be want to leave, because I know that the public, for the most part, if you're not using pace figures, it's going to think there's a ton of pace in the race automatically. And pace figures allow you to really look at it and see, is that really true? Or if somebody's horse has just been making the leads in very soft paces, and there's really only one speed horse in this race, or, you know, if the opposite is true, that there really is a lot of pace, and you should be looking for a closer in the race. So it really tells the whole story of how races will run. Um, and the horse I mentioned earlier that I thought would benefit from a cu- cutback accession. Um, here's a perfect example. His, his pace figure in the little he got, he peaked at a 81, but then finished at a 78 on the pace figures that I'm using. So he reached his highest level right around the eighth pole. Mm-hmm. And that's why I said, I think he would benefit from a cutback. And, uh, I mean, one of the biggest scores I ever made in my life is with Warriors Reward, who was doing the same thing, uh, Derby week when he broke it. it was either broke his maiden or it might have been 9-1 as a 1. Um, he was cutting back and, uh, and I really loved him in that spot. He came through that day.
0: It's a great angle. Now, not everybody obviously is going to have access to the proprietary information that you have, but I should just point out for some of the newer listeners that there are products out there, and I'll mention two of them, Brissnet being one, Timeform US being another, where you can get these commercially available pace figures that can really give you a sense to use some of the same handicapping techniques that Frank is talking about. And I think sort of baked into your comments about pace, Frank, is an understanding of what a race usually goes in in terms of the pace figures, this concept of a pace par. Well, horses usually run a certain figure to this part of the race. They usually finish in around x final figure and then when you can look at a horse's individual figures around those two sort of fixed points of what the par is to the pace call what the par is to the final that's where i think you can find some of these opportunities do you look specifically at the pace pars of what a race usually goes in or is this just something you know from over time by osmosis and just watching thousands of races
1: yeah at this point it's it's osmosis right I'm, I mean, I've got an idea of what they're going to run. Um, not exactly, but how, how fast they should be going, internal fractions and stuff like that. Um, and you can tell if, if you're getting a, a true, accurate portrayal of a horse's ability or uh, a, a clear picture of the um, what these horses are capable of if you got a legit pace. And I think we really did get that in the O'Connor. I mean, I think this pace, you know, no nobody on that was the speed horses weren't compromised because they went too fast, and the closers weren't um, dressed up because they went too fast. I think it was average, you know, a solid pace that the closers ran into, and they were just the best horses that day.
0: One more specific note about the Lecompte, and then I want to. Talk to you about trip handicapping and looking at horses in the paddock, two of my favorite topics to discuss with you. But you mentioned you were somewhat optimistic about Silver State and Enforceable, both going forward for different reasons. Do you think either of these horses is a serious Kentucky Derby or at least Louisiana Derby threat?
1: I would think they both are. Um, I mean, I I think I haven't seen anybody out there that has blown me away this year. Uh, as far as the three-year-olds, well, I have seen one that's blown me away as far as the three-year-olds, but it's a filly. Her name is Teraz. Um, and she's, she's the best three-year-old at the fairgrounds, but, uh, you know, she's going to Oakland for her next start. And I don't know what the plan is, but she's special. If, if, if anybody listening to this wants to take note of what a special horse is, it's Teraz. Wow. uh but um, I think these horses definitely have a shot. And last year, I don't know if you remember or not, uh, the Risen Star produced the Derby winner, Country Star, produced the Woody Stevens winner, Hog Creek Custles, yeah. and it produced the Preakness winner, Royal <laughs> wolf So uh, we definitely have uh, you know, a history with producing horses that have come out of this series. And I think these horses are legit.
0: Let me ask you about note taking. When did you first develop that skill and how did you develop the skill? I, I, I think there's a lot of people out there who are hearing you talk and saying, man, I wish I could make notes like that. How did you learn? How is best for somebody else to try to learn?
1: I started with a notebook and a pen and I would just take general notes about the day in general as to what I, how I thought the track was playing. And this was probably 20 years ago, um, and then, uh, and then I would get more specific about horses that I thought you know, had big performances when they were against the way the track was playing that day, and I'd write them down. I had a list. There was no bet back list at that time. There was no equibase to put in your list. I just had a list. I had to wait and check the entries every day to see when they were running. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, this is... This is exactly how it happened. The bad then, old days. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, can't, I met, uh, I was at the Orleans for a handicapping contest, um, probably in 2005. And, uh, and I met a guy um, who was doing some work with, with Paul and Duke. They were all living out there in Vegas. And, um, and I was doing this work by hand at Louisiana Downs for the, the horses I was following. And uh, I exchanged some horses with this guy this day. I gave him some horses with Louisiana Downs, and knock on wood, I had a good day. He came and grabbed me and said, I want you to introduce you to these guys. We could use somebody to do some work in Louisiana.
0: Oh, that's great. And, uh- Ended up joining the the, the legendary. I'm to, I'm just going to call it a horse playing kibbutz. I don't really know what the right term is, but uh, and this of course is a proprietary database that you guys use. But folks out there, they there are products out there that allow you to take notes yeah, that are yeah, commercial,
1: very similar. And and I think that uh, the fact that there are products out there uh, that are similar now, um, proved that what we were onto was the right thing.
0: And I think you mentioned the virtual stable idea. I mean, that is just so important. Equibase.com, I think it's fairly easy to find if you go on there. Maybe it's under entries, and you can just, if you have a specific course you know you want to bet back, I'd say, again, it depends on your style. If you're coming up with a couple of horses a day, you can manage them in a virtual stable. If you're coming up like you did before, notes on every horse, then you're going to probably need something a little more sophisticated to try to, to, to manage all that stuff. But it's just, it's just invaluable. And where did you learn the types of things you're, you're talking about? I mean, did you read a book about trip handicapping, or does this just go back to you know, whenever you first started going to the track?
1: Now, you you know, I remember, so I remember having a a real interest in it and and knowing that I was passionate about it. And I'm gonna tell you, I've heard so many people say this, and I guess it's true. I guess we owe this guy a lot more (laughs) uh, credit. But Andy Byer Picking Winners, that was the first book I read on horse racing. And then I've read his $50,000 a year at the races. And then You just start getting into it more and more, and and you know this. I mean, handicapping is just layers and layers and layers of knowledge, and it never ends. That's the best part about this game. It never ends. You're always learning.
0: If you're not getting better, you're falling behind, true or false.
1: It is true, and and I also believe, um, I really believe that it's a lot like professional sports in the way that – You're going to, you got to be in your peak. You know, it's a lot of work to stay on top of this. And I, I I really think that the older you get, you're either going to have to slow down your game or adjust your game because it's a grind to do it every day. I mean, I put a lot of hours into this every week.
0: What's your business plan, Frank, as a horse player? So many of the players I've talked to lately that I've been interviewing for this uh, this book that we're going to call with 100% sarcasm Easy Game, and it's going to be interviews with, uh, with successful handicappers and, and pro players. And So much of the business model is the same and it's people looking for they're grinding to get their information and perfect their information, but they're making their money off a handful of big hits and trying to limit the downside. Is that what it right. is for you or are you more of a no. or, of a grinder?
1: I'm, uh, so I am a grinder, and I'm going to tell you, I think the way you said it, easy game kind of fits it. I try to make it an easy game. Um, I try to just take advantage of races where I, I feel like I have uh, an edge, be it because I have information or I think I know something that the public doesn't have access to or maybe that I think is going to be overlooked. Um so I would much rather. I'm, I'm not a big home run hitter. I don't play a lot of pick six tickets. I don't play. I, I really don't play a, a ton of pick fives. I mean, I know there's value with the low takeout, but I'd rather beat up a race any day of the week. I'd really keep it simple because one thing about this business, when you're right in this business, you've got to get paid, yeah. and there's no easier way to getting paid than hitting a win bet in an exacta. You got to hit the exact to hit the try. You got to hit the try to hit the super. I'd rather just hit the exact for more and not have to worry about who runs third most of the time.
0: I, I like what you're saying a lot now, but how many bets can you find realistically in, say, a week where you can, oh, where I you play, can do that? Oh, I
1: play a number. Yeah, I mean, I'm, there's usually three or four races on a card that I'm playing um, where I think I've, I've got an opportunity to make a profit. And I'm right now I'm seriously following uh, two, three tracks a day. It's going to be more when Oakland starts because there's going to be some fairgrounds horses shipping over there. But I'm following the Louisiana tracks that are running, Fairgrounds in Delta, and then a little Gulfstream here and there.
0: You've talked about having a civilian job at times as opposed to your horse player job. Times when horse playing is more important to your income, does it change the way that you play at all, or are you pretty much the same horse player no matter what else you have going on professionally?
1: No, I I spend a lot more time uh, on it right now, this time of year, when the fairgrounds is running a lot. I'm out there a lot, and um, I'm watching a lot of horses train. I mean, I'm I'm trying to take advantage. It's a real opportunity because this is one game where the horses, they play like they practice. And when you get a chance to see them practice uh, or see them up close and personal, sometimes you don't even have to see them working. You can just see them galloping and see horses that are just, I mean, they're just exuding energy. You know you're going to get a big effort on them. And I try to say I would pay attention to that, you know, in the post parade and in horses in the paddock. Um, you can just see when horses are jumping out of their skin. Where you did you learn
0: these skills, Frank? We got this is so great, and I agree. But it's it's pretty contrarian, I think, in a funny way. Especially the the players I've been talking to for the book. Most of them will, you know, joke they can they have four legs and a tail. They're all the same to them. You're seeing something that a lot of people aren't seeing. Where did that skill come from?
1: I, you know, I probably started noticing it, uh, when you when you own on so some horses, um, and the more you're on the backside, and the more you're around them eventually you've seen enough that it just starts separating things for you and makes it all clear. I remember exactly, I mean, I remember when I would feel the same way that, well, this horse looks like that horse, or I, I can't t- tell that that's a colt and that's a filly. Well, now, I mean, I can, and i look at him, and you can. I can just see the difference. You can look at a horse and tell if he's a horse that wants two turns, or he's a sprinter, by the way he's put together, you know, how long he is. What I mean by how long he is is, how much horse is there behind the saddle? Like once the saddle's on, is there a lot of more horse left that goes back to his tail, or is that not much? If there's not much, he's a sprinter. If there's a lot, he's going to appreciate two turns.
0: That's interesting. I never heard it put that way before. I think about it in terms of type, certainly, and that idea Maggie Wolfendale is always talking about about the the sprinters who are built. Downhill, but I think that's yeah. a good. I think that's an, another really interesting way of looking at it. And did you have a teacher, or d- did this really just come from hanging around and watching?
1: Uh, yeah, well, I had a teacher by hanging out with these these knuckleheads. I used to hang out with. Um, <laughs> I would I, I would get I would go the, the first day I've had a horse with was this uh, guy from New Orleans I've been knowing for years. His name's Sturgis Ducoin. Um, Sturgis has been training for a long time. And uh, I actually thought about going to work on the backside when I was younger. Sturgis was going to give me a job at Jefferson Downs back in the day, and I I decided I went a different direction. Um, But anyway, when I got my first horse, it was with Sturgis, and I started hanging out with Sturgis and Merrill Shera and Ray Seville and even Eddie Delahousse would come around every now and then, and it was like being at a comedy show every morning. (laughs) I mean, they just sat out on a rail and went back and forth with one another, but you get to, you learn a lot just hanging around these guys and listening to these old characters and tell their stories and talk about horses. Uh, and then, you know, just the more you're around it, Pete, I don't have to tell you the more you're around it, the more you see. I, I would, I would recommend to anybody that wants to learn, uh, more about how horses look to go to whatever track they're closest to during training hours. I mean, it, it should be accessible for everybody. If you and if it's if they have if for some reason, as a rule, just go get an owner's license, just so you can get out there and, and see how horses train. I mean, I know at Saratoga it's open to the public at the fairgrounds; it's open to the public. But I don't know if it's any different than any other jurisdictions. But it's worth just being out there and seeing how horses train. And then also gets you get to see how different operations, how different trainers operate. I mean, it's not a coincidence that. The same trainers win the majority of the races when you get to see how they operate every morning, how much work they put in, how organized they are. I get to watch the Asmussen, Brad Cox show, Tom Amos, Al Stahl, Mark Cassie. I mean, I see these guys and they work their butts off in the morning to win races in the afternoon. Not by accident. Oh, it's
0: great. It's great stuff. You mentioned information before as something. Are you talking about backstretch information, things that you might hear, or for you, is the information that's going to lead to bets entirely stuff that you observe with your eyes?
1: Mostly stuff I observe with my eyes. Yeah, it's mostly things I observe with my eyes and knowing that a track was playing a certain way a certain day. Um, What about inside
0: information or supposedly inside information? I'm one of my great early mentors in the game, the great racing writer, William Murray uh, wrote an essay once about how your ears can be your worst enemy as a horse player, especially when you're spending time on the backstretch. Where do you, where do you stand on that idea?
1: I mean, it's, it's just, you've heard this before. If you get a tip from one person, consider it. If you get a tip from the same tip from three people, book it.
0: <laughs> Harvey Pack, that's a Harvey Pack line. My other mentor.
1: <laughs> right. um, I would much rather have negative information from trainers. I, I'd hear them say, yeah today's not the day." Because the they, I mean, when they tell you today's not, I'd rather hear them tell me no because. Trainers can tell you, oh, I love my horse, but I don't know if the trainer knows about a handicap. I mean, his horse might be doing great, but he might his best might not be able to beat somebody else. Right. But when they tell you, you, know, you you can expect that I'm not going to give you the best at, uh, or a top performance today, that, I think that's invaluable. It can
0: backfire, yeah, too, certainly, but I'd say there's more signal in it than the other way, where very often, the, the what I always say is they just, and, and I've had horsemen get very offended when I say this, and I don't really mean it to be offensive, but what I'll say is, you know, they, they can't see past their own shed row, and what I mean yeah. by that is, it's not really their, it is their job, of course, to worry about if their horse fits in the race, but it's not really their job to get into the finer points of handicapping a race, it's their job to make sure their horse is healthy and happy and ready to run its best, so
1: right. those are two very different things. Yeah. And, and I, I, if you, if you're going to get a tip on a horse that a trainer likes, take it from a trainer that you know best.
0: Yes. That's a great point.
1: <laughs> right, Cause they're not betting unless they know who they're running. against.
0: That's right. You wouldn't last very long anyway. Let's put it that way.
1: Right. Right.
0: I want to go <laughs> back to the beginning with you, Frank, where did you first become interested in racing?
1: I remember, uh, I remember my dad taking the whole family. There was an old handicap horse here in the fairgrounds in the late 70s called Letter to Harry. Um, and he brought, I remember him bringing us to the track a couple of times to see Letter to Harry run. I remember just loving everything about it. And then just by chance, I made friends, uh, very good friends with a guy in high school whose uncle was a track superintendent at the fairgrounds. And we used to go out there on the weekends and hang out in his office. He was also the stall superintendent. So the trainers, they wanted to make sure that they uh, they were in his good favor. So they got the barn assignments that they wanted the following year. And the old fairgrounds before it burned, the paddock was right next to his office. And his office had a big picture window that looked out onto the racetrack. So the trainers would go in his office, and he had a, he had a bar in there, and they'd make a drink and they'd watch the races, and if they really liked their horse, they'd tell him, and he had set it up so me and my friends could go bet with this one teller. He'd give us 100 bucks for him, and <laughs> sometimes he'd give us $10 or 20 that we could bet for ourselves <laughs> on the horse. And it didn't take long for us. So. Oh, that's great. That's great. Bud Delp came in. I remember Bud Delp coming in one day, and, and uh, he gave us an explosive bid. I think he, he paid $56 that day the first time he was on the turf. Um, it didn't take long at all. Oh, I remember, so I, I spent a lot of time at the fairgrounds when I was a teenager. Um, I remember the first year that Lucas brought a horse down. It was Balboa native. I don't remember. It had to be the early 80s because um, we went out with his uncle and removed the temporary rail on the turf course so he could go into the winter circle and get his picture taken. I didn't know who Wayne Lucas was at the time. <laughs> but in hindsight, I figured out who it was.
0: Oh, that's funny. Oh my goodness. Where did it really take off for you in terms of something that became a a source of income? Was it, was there a transition between this is something I do for fun and this is something I do for money?
1: I I remember when I got back from uh, that trip to Vegas, when, uh, when I met Paul and Duke and I I told my wife, I said, I said, this is going to be different going forward. I said, these guys are on to something. And, and I got, we got a shot and, Knock on wood, it's
0: been good ever since. In both your horse playing early on days, all the way through talking about meeting that crew at the Orleans, gosh, whatever that was now, 15 years ago, you prove one of my little pet theses, which is that in gambling and really in all of life, there's a hidden skill and it's networking being able to hang out with the right people that you can learn from and grow with and entertain how important, right. how important is the right crowd for you when it comes to horse racing?
1: Oh, it's, I mean, you got to have good karma around it. Uh, there's some guys, there's some guys that when I see them, I just go the other way. I don't know. <laughs> Negativity. Like black, what's,
0: uh, yeah. What's, what's the problem with those guys?
1: It, it, just yeah. Negative. You know, always that uh, I'm thinking of one guy in particular. Every time he loses a race, he thinks the race is a fix. I say, you, you think the race is a fix. Why you bet him every day? I mean, <laughs> what are you doing here? Uh, it's that kind of guy, you know? It's the same guy that they, they're pulling for a horse that's going backwards at the eighth hole and they just keep pulling for him. Like, you really? You don't know what you're looking at yet? <laughs> um, but I agree with you. I, I, you know, networking is huge. And and I'll, I'll tell you a story. Uh, I met a guy, I was in the paddock this weekend at the fairgrounds, and it was right before the risen star. And this guy came up, came up, a young guy, and he introduced himself, and he said he had listened to me on a, we had done a fairgrounds podcast a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I could just tell that this guy was a young guy who was passionate about horse racing. He reminded me of me when I was his age. And I mean, i uh, he just—he—he he cared enough about it that he wanted to ask me or pick my brain about a couple of things, and came up and talked to me. And I was happy to talk to him. I actually even gave him a couple of horses to bet on going forward. I told him he should make a holster bet. Here, you want a story?
0: Yeah, we, we, you were—you knew you were going to get asked one, so uh, here, hit me with it now.
1: Have I ever told you what a holster bet is? I don't think
0: we've talked about the holster bet on this show.
1: So, so back in the late '80s. Maybe early 90s, there was this guy, a trainer that came down a couple of seasons to the fairgrounds from Rockingham named Hugh Carney. And I don't know how we got tied in with this guy, but we had some info from him and we cashed a bet on some horses. The place they used to sit in the fairgrounds, there was a security guard who we knew, a guy named Joey Fanassi. He was a character. He used to, he was a heavy, little guy and he, he used to have, he used to drive around. And he had a wetsuit in the back of his car, because when he when the fairgrounds on the dark days, he would go to the public golf course, put on his wetsuit, and go get in the lagoon and fish fish out golf balls that he sold to the range, so he would have money to start the week setting. I kid you not. So, oh, so classic. The, the the first few Carney horse wins, and unfortunately for Joey. The 2nd you U-Carney horse wasn't running till Sunday, which is late in the week. So he had blown all his golf ball money. <laughs> but he wasn't going to miss this opportunity. So he shows up that day and he bets on his horse. The horse wins. It gets DQ'd. Oh. A legitimate DQ. But we all need a track. Show up the next next week to we come back. Joey's got an empty holster. He had pawned his gun to bet on that horse. And didn't have money to buy it back. He walked around for the next month with an empty holster. (laughs) (laughs) So when you really like one, you got to make a holster bet.
0: Oh, that's fantastic! Oh my
1: goodness! It's like making an airplane bet in football with a bookie. You know, (laughs) if you lose and you don't have the money, you don't have to pay. You just got to get on an airplane and get out of town.
0: (laughs) Oh, tremendous! So you had a holster bet to give to this young fan last weekend, or what was weird? How did this come up?
1: I did. I gave, him a, I gave him a first-time starter to look for that I will not be releasing on this podcast.
0: <laughs> You've given us enough. Has the horse run yet, by the way?
1: Not yet, but soon.
0: Okay, interesting. Interesting. Can it, you give us any clue just to play the game? I'm not trying to hold your feet to the fire here, but just is it one we're going to be looking at that maybe that's a the shorter end of the odd spectrum that we can guess, or is this is this one that's really uh, hidden from view?
1: No, no, no. He'll be a, He'll be reasonable. He'll take money. Okay. He'll take money. He's the real deal.
0: There was a lot yeah. of chatter about that one firster that ran all right at the at the fairgrounds. Uh, was it Saturday or Sunday? Do you know the horse? I'm I'm I'm, give, I'm not giving you much, and I'll look it up. But do you, do you know off the hand off hand what I'm talking
1: about? It was some. It seemed like a oh, Clocker
0: darling horse.
1: Amos's horse.
0: Yes, 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 yes. What was it called?
1: Yeah, um, that was the. He had two in the race. It wasn't the mandate horse. He, he, so that there's something to pay attention to. He had two in the race, and uh, I had actually talked to him. I know he, uh, he thought highly of both of his horses, and he scratched one, so I would look for the other one going forward. Uh, wherever she shows up, her name was—I'll you know, give it to you right here. Oh, nice! Uh, it was Charming Lady. Okay. She's a ghost zapper, and the horse he scratched was Speedy Mandate. But I thought the I thought the maiden performance of the day was the Asmussen horse, um, because I was heavily invested in Erner, the first time starter that had been working at the fairgrounds. That's, that's and, the
0: one I had heard some some scuttlebutt about. I was going to ask uh, you about that.
1: Right. So so that he brought in Echo Town, a Spice Town from Houston, and that was impressive. He put Talamo on that one, and he just sat wide and just ran by Erner, who was a nice horse, So the race went in 109 and three. So uh, Erna got beat two lengths. I basically bet or was invested into a first time starter that ran 109 and four, and I didn't get paid. So tough game.
0: Yes, that's the reality is that it's a tough game, of course. But sounds like right. Erner acquitted pretty well and is maybe one to keep an eye on. I mean, we talk about it in the Mike Maloney book, Betting with an Edge, that uh, first-time starters you could have heard a tip that they were going to go on and they were so good they were going to win the Triple Crown and and break these long droughts. And, and, you know, you didn't get paid if you bet Secretariat or American Pharaoh either. Not that I'm putting Erner in that class, but I'm just saying it's not necessarily that the, the, the information wasn't wrong uh, for a horse right. like that to run that. Well, it's it's one of those things you have to people want instant gratification, especially especially if you hear a, a, like a, a if somebody like comes to you with a tip, those unsolicited tips, I think it's it's very hard not to be a little bit uh, cynical about when they don't win. But I mean, it seems to me like that horse still has uh, just an absolute ton of potential. What did you what did you think?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think both of them are nice. But I'm, I mean, I'm I'm pretty confident Tabius and Better than the one that's say 13 and 1. I'm sure he knew what he was doing. (laughs) And that's why he was training at Houston and came in here for the race. (laughs) Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. Like I said, don't trust. You should only trust trainers that bet. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he bets.
0: Oh, that's great. All right. I want to ask you about your most memorable day at the races. This is something I've been asking everybody in these interviews for the book. I didn't prep you for it, but I have a feeling you'll be able to come up with something pretty good for us off the cuff here.
1: I would think my most memorable day at the races was the, the first time uh, I ran a horse the first race he ran I, I claimed my dad was sick and my dad and I uh, claimed a over 19 maiden at Louisiana Downs named mint flight um, I had seen I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say who this trainer was but this trainer couldn't train Lassie to bark <laughs> and, and I knew I knew the horse had some potential. We claimed them uh, for $5,000 because uh, because he wanted the, – uh, they had just put in the slot machines at Delta Downs, and I, I, the pots for Maiden 10, which was the bottom at Delta, were like 19000 So I convinced my dad to go in half with me and claim this horse because we could run for Maiden 10 at Delta against the same horses with a 19 pot. So he says, okay, so we claim this horse together. A guy that got a train for me, a guy named Scott Tubbs, and Scott called me, and I told him what the plan was. And he, he called me after we claimed him. He said, You know, I like this horse. He said, This horse, he's got four different size shoes on, though. He said, He, he looks like the guy must have be been keeping him on a farm, and he's got a lung infection. I said, Well, look, do what you got to do. Let's go. I don't know any thing about training horses. Take care of it. So, about three weeks later, it was a Saturday morning, my phone rang, and it, it's Scott. And I said, This can't be good. You're calling me on a Saturday, 10 in the morning. He said, he called me City Slicker. Was, he, he was from Shreveport. And he said, City Slipper, you got to do me a favor. You got to let me run this horse, baby, special weight first time. I said, "You no shot, pal. Said, you are not embarrassing me. I'm like a guy that doesn't know what he's doing, claims a horse for 5,000, we're going to run, baby, special weight." He said, please, about 30,000. Said, I need the money. Your horse is gonna win. I said, No, it's not happening. He says, I weigh 157 pounds. I just worked your horse. He went 47 and one and I couldn't hold it. Please. So I called, I said, I'll call you back. Call my father. I, I said, Dad, this guy wants to do this. I said, let's give him one shot at this, and then we'll just take it after that. My dad says, okay. This son of a gun paid $32. He wants won- <laughs> those. And I bet like a woman because I thought he had no shot. I mean, I, I bet peanuts on him that day, but he won. And that was the most memorable day I've ever had the race. That oh day. my goodness
0: gracious. Oh, that is hilarious. <laughs> what happened to the horse? Did he go on to do anything down he there? He,
1: he went on to win. We won three races in six weeks. $330,000 pots. Jeez. We ran him back. Um, like three weeks later, I went, and that time I bet on him pretty good. <laughs> and he won off the screen, paid seven bucks. And then he ran back nine days later in one of these races at Delta where the fog rolled in. And all you could, the whole call of the race was in or off. And here they come the first time past the finish line. And it's missed light on the lead. And then they were gone. And then when he came back around, he said, I think it's missed light. <laughs> and he won by a nose up there.
0: The, what was yeah. the manner of the maiden special weight win? Was it a wire-to-wire uh, stomping?
1: Yeah, it was. Three different jockeys, too. That, day was, that night was, uh, I think we won him that night. Tracy Aver, I believe, wrote him that night. Uh, no, it wasn't Tracy. Anthony Lovato wrote him the first night. <laughs> and then the second night, we had uh, Tracy Abe. And then the third night... We had another jockey because somebody got sick. I had Jose Verenzuela up the third zone, who actually won a race in Dubai. He went to Dubai after that and won a race uh I think he won like the Golden Shaheen from one of the Sheiks.
0: From from Delta to so, Dubai. It, it's, it's a how journey. do you like that? Yeah, it's a journey that could happen. For you Crazy game. you've you've obviously had success on the the claiming and owning side. Is there more money to be made for you on that side of things or through gambling, do you think, with horse racing in
1: 2020? Well, it's a lot less. Well, it's crazy to say, but it's probably a lot less risky gambling <laughs> than a horse. But there's certain situations that you can take advantage of with, uh, so, I mean, I, I, I just recently claimed the horse. Uh, and I claim it because the condition he runs for, He's a state red. And the condition he runs for, I think the pot is out of line. I claimed a $12,500 horse that gets to run against his kind for a $41,000 pot. Wow! And so it's disproportionate. So I think it's worth taking a risk there. And I've done, I did that with one in that same level last year and had success with him. So I've got another one this year in that same spot. And I'll just keep looking. You got to have something in mind. I mean, a horse is only worth what they can run for. And you can't, Make a profit unless you win or run second. It's a, it is risky, but you you know you gotta you gotta put them in reasonable spots. I mean, it makes no sense to claim a thirty thousand dollar horse if the purse he's going to run for at the track where you're going to claim him is eighteen thousand, because you can't financially you can't get out.
0: Who's this one with trainer wise?
1: Uh,
0: did you uh, feel like sharing track. the name?
1: Brett Calhoun. he's out. He's actually on the also eligibles this Saturday okay. at the playground. I don't okay. know if we get in. His name is Louisiana Moon. It's a great name, actually. Yeah, he's by a Malibu Moon out on the coast of the Ghost Aftermath.
0: Oh, geez, very, very nicely, Brad. All right, well, we we certainly uh, wish you wish you Godspeed, Frank, with that. And
1: if, it would be a good day if I win the Pegasus. My horse draws in and wins. I might never, I might just retire.
0: <laughs> I don't believe it for a second. You're not going to put that line over on me. Um, bef- actually, before we let you get out of here, I do want you to reflect on uh, the amazing achievements that your brother has had in contests. Of course, Patrick being the only two-time winner of the a major tournament pretty much uh, winning that breeders cup betting challenge back to back. Will he be participating at the Pegasus? What, what's he yep. up to these days? And, you know, he gave you full marks for bringing him in and coaching him up and, and doing all that stuff. I, I just want you to talk about that for a
1: minute too. He's actually under house arrest right now <laughs> uh, from the national championship game night with LSU. <laughs> uh, what happened? Well, he called me about, well, I think it wound up being uh, six bottles of Opus One is what happened. Uh, a silver oak, one or the two. he called me about uh, six o'clock that night, which was about an hour before kickoff, and he could barely speak. And I said, you better not be driving. Apparently, him and some of his buddies went to lunch, uh, and it just rolled right through to the point where... They had the staff of the restaurant. They were buying so much wine. The staff of the restaurant went out and acquired them a TV, and put it right in front of that table to watch the entire game. There, just keep drinking. So he, I think he's under. He's definitely under house arrest. He won't be making the Pegasus trip. Oh my goodness, that's
0: hilarious.
1: Yeah. But but I give Patrick all the credit in the uh, in the contest scene for saying he, you're not taking any of this money home. You're going for it and you got to win or or you got to, it's a tool in these contests and I get it. If somebody wins in and you need some money, I mean, I've been there, I know it. Uh, But if you have the chance to win the contest, that money's got to be a tool for you and you got to be willing to use it that way.
0: Nobody showed it better. He really did help author the template i feel like it's evolved over time more to what you were talking about before where you maybe need to make two moves at this point to be able to get the job done but uh the the stones he showed in those last races both of those years yeah you must have been very proud and i'm guessing maybe also a little bit envious
1: yeah yeah oh no very proud and actually i'm i'm very proud uh i've just seen how how far uh his handicapping knowledge has come, and I feel like, uh, you know, I take credit for getting him involved. And we have Patrick and I talk about horses probably 10 times a week. It's crazy. He calls me on his way to work and on his way home, and he always wants to talk about what happened that day or was running this day. And, um, and I could just hear it. I mean, I've watched him become a better and better handicapper over the years.
0: Fantastic stuff. Well, Great luck at the Pegasus. Hopefully, we'll be interviewing you again on the early show next week for the regular In the Money pod, as we we like to have the Pegasus winner on. And hopefully, it's going to go your way.
1: I appreciate it, Pete. Let's get him home.
0: Thank you, my friend. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of Redboard Rewind. Had a lot of fun sitting in for Spencer Buell today. Hopefully his voice is feeling better and he'll be back with you next week. This show's been a production of In the Money Media. I am the president and guest host today. Uh, our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchen, Drew is our business manager. We will see you next time.